they can no longer be truly autarkic, truly independent when it comes to combat aircraft. A lot of stuff, I suspect, including major components for radars, EW systems, whatever, have to be imported. And that means they're just as vulnerable to a cutoff in the event of an embargo. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The first rule of Fighter Club is that we talk about Fighter Club. Countries around the world are building their own fighter aircraft, and the world's preeminent aviation analyst, Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, joins us for the full program, as he is family and a regular participant on the Business Roundtable every Sunday to tell us how the United States has created a market for them and how the United States might profit off them, even if it does not have a leading aircraft to be selling in that market in a couple of years. And we have this week's headlines in air power. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for the F-35. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? It's a cornucopia of aerospace news this week, Bago. I guess we'll put at the top a new potential sale of F-16s, although they're not new F-16s. The U.S. is looking to get approval to sell Argentina, 38 former Danish Air Force F-16s, along with three P-3s. Why do we want to sell these to Argentina? Well, China is in Argentina pitching the JF-17. And it looked like a good way to beat the Chinese. Some of that may be part of our discussion with Richard Abalafia later in the show. Romania is looking to buy 32 F-35s. They will have to take their place in line behind all the other folks who want them, since the production rate apparently is not going up. Yes, we want Ukrainian pilots to have F-16s but it looks like it's going to take a while. The Washington Post has reported that they are not likely to get trained until next summer. What's the problem? A shortage of jets? No. A shortage of skilled Ukrainian pilots? No. It's a shortage of skilled Ukrainian pilots with enough technical English to take that kind of instruction, or apparently a shortage of trainers with enough technical Ukrainian to be understood. Earlier this week on the business roundtable, you heard discussion of an Indonesian order for 18 Rafale aircraft from Dassault. That's actually not new. Indonesia ordered 42 Rafales last year. They only paid for six. They have come along and paid for another 18. So this is essentially converting a soft order into a firm order. We have yet to know when they're going to pay for the rest of them. And while a MiG-23 crash may sound like a headline from 20 years ago, it happened this past weekend, and of all places, in Michigan. A MiG-23 flying in the Thunder Over Michigan air show had an unspecified technical problem. Both pilots were able to eject safely. The aircraft managed to avoid hitting anybody on the ground as well, although it is a total write-off. But there continues to be a reason why people who buy Russian aircraft, the first thing they do is upgrade the ejection seats. Vago? I am very glad that that crew got out of the MiG-23, and it's always uh, unfortunate to see 
any kind of accident, especially one with a rare aircraft that uh, always draws uh, airshow crowds and serves as an inspiration. Knowing a couple of Ukrainian-American aviators, both wearing the Navy and Air Force uniforms, I'd like to believe that the United States would be able to marshal uh, the language skills required to train these pilots to operate those uh, aircraft. And I don't even think pure Ukrainian is necessary for them, right? I mean, Russian may be sufficient, given that most Ukrainians actually speak both uh, languages. And it was only until recently that uh, Ukraine changed its uh, national regulations to uh, speak uh, Ukrainian and expunge Russian from the vocabulary. And I think in another uh, interesting element, I remember when the United States actually sold those first tranche of F-16s across uh, Latin America, that was kind of a, a hot button issue. And I think it's a great opportunity now to bring Richard into the discussion since we are talking about fighter aircraft. So how do you think this uh, stacks up, Richard? Does uh, Argentina go for F-16s or does it go for JF-17s? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, it's sort of a fascinating story, as you allude to, with the uh, the sort of Monroe Doctrine approach to uh, F-16 fighter sales, you know, that the U.S. basically said, I think it was circa 1982, and of all places, Venezuela, we like you guys, we're worried about Cuba, we're going to sell you F-16s, nobody else gets F-16s. And that was the doctrine for a couple of decades, up until Chile, of all places, became the second approved user, and they bought a squadron, I believe, back in the early 2000s. I remember the FIDI air show down in uh, Santiago, and uh, it was on everyone's minds. I also saw one of their wonderful static display Hawker Hunters on a personal note and thought, okay, that is very cool. But anyway, um, since then, really nobody in, in the Southern America continent has gotten F-16s, which is sort of fascinating. Certainly not new ones. Argentina, of course, has truly god-awful economics. I mean, that's legendary. And they might, they, they, they've got this new kind of far-right libertarian candidate who's viewed as likely to win in the next election. Whether that's good or not, I don't know, but he's planning on dollarizing the economy and everything like that. So there are big questions about affordability of anything. The Koreans tried to sell the FA-50. Uh, obviously, I've got the Chinese. There's been talk of, um, I think there was an effort to sell used mirages at one point. In other words, they seem to really like the idea of maintaining a supersonic combat aircraft capability in Argentina, but the economics and the intent don't appear to be there. So hope springs eternal, but that's it. The timing is also funny. At a time when most of Europe is trying to find a way to get their used F-16s to Ukraine, here's the Danish through the U.S. sending F-16s to Argentina, which may or may not actually need them. You know, it's a good point. And uh, of course, the funny thing about the F-16, the used F-16 market, is there's always been more supply than there was demand. And that was in part because it was one of those decisions that if you took it, it was only an interim solution. A lot of those F-16A models available from European countries like Denmark were built around 1980 or something like that. <laughs> so you could operate them for a few years, but after that, you have to go with something else. Still, it is interesting that it might wind up in that direction rather than, as you say, Ukraine. It's going to be uh, fascinating. Do you think Argentina's industrial policies kind of get in the way of this at all, Richard? Right. I mean, the country has a build domestic model almost across the board when it comes to industrial manufacturing. Is that something that becomes potentially problematic? You know, for years, of course, that was one of the great root causes of the Argentinian economic, you know, it's a series of disasters, the sort of 
autarkic Mussolini-esque economy. <laughs> and sure enough, on the military side, they have the legendary uh, Fabrica Militar Argentina, which for a few years was actually owned by Lockheed Martin, if you can believe it. They purchased it I, with the expectation. I remember, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the Pampa, the Pampa was going to become a big seller at some point on the market. <laughs> I, you know, I think it was even part of the JPATS competition yes, or something it like was. that. It, it, ding, ding, ding. it was. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good Lord. Boy, that was a black. Wow. That was great, obscure metal. And the winner is sticking the and landing the with 10 points. But they've been trying to build the latest version of the Pampa over the past five or six or seven years since JJ does my job, my former job at Teal Military Aircraft. I'm sure he's he follows the, this with, with great weird interest. Like every so often, they actually will make progress in building like the third example. In other words, they have the remnants of this military industry, but it's going nowhere fast. So they might have the pretense of like, oh, why should we buy when we can build local? But, oh boy, they've come a long way since the sort of grand plan days of the 80s. Also, take you back to the Falkland Islands. Remember, they had their own indigenous attack aircraft, the Pukara, that went right. in against British troops in the Falklands. Right. But one of the things about this deal we don't know is what's the maintenance plan? It could be that there's some technology transfer involved so that the Argentinians can maintain these jets themselves, which would help companies like FMA move into a little more modern stance compared to their competitors. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. That that was exactly the strategy Lockheed Martin had when they owned FMA. It did not go well at all. So you've got this terrible combination of god-awful economics Poor governance. It's it's hard to imagine a great future for FMA. Well, I, I just want to point out to the audience, right, that the Argentine Air Force is still using A4s. And uh, as, you know, a, a lover of the Skyhawk, I love the idea that uh, Heinemann's hot rod is still being used somewhere and obviously used the A4 force to great effect during the Falkland Islands campaign. So, it, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's time to go to a new generation of aircraft, I think it's safe to say, in Argentina. Is there much to say about Romania wanting F-35s other than take a number everybody does and you'll get them when you get them? That's exactly right. I still don't understand how they do the, you know, production skyline without saying, oh, my God, how do we make this happen? Uh, it's, you know, without any coherent plans to even, you know, get beyond 156 or even get to 156. It's been years of trying to get there. I just don't see how these people are satisfied anytime soon with their uh, plans to get this plane. Well, perhaps worrisomely, the only way that they really do get all of the foreign orders fulfilled is if they defer U.S. orders and we start getting toward the back of the line. I know that there are those who are conspiracy theorists regarding the U.S. budget who think that's exactly what we want to do, to spend money on F-35s as late as possible and let everybody else go first. I mean, I think that's that might be some plan of the Pentagon. There might be some people who believe that, but Congress keeps getting in the way, right? I mean, the Pentagon asks for 34 rather than 48 for the uh, the Air Force, and Congress dutifully inserts however many they've inserted. So Congress is just as aggressive about wanting F-35s as uh, a lot of these new customers have been. We would have gotten away with our F-35 plan if not for those meddlesome kids in Congress. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't buy that. We have vast fighter requirements. And ultimately, when we go to the next generation of aircraft for the high of our high-low mix, Frank Kendall 
you know, I think it was like a year and a half ago at the Air Warfare Symposium, and I believe it was in Orlando, uh, the last one in Orlando before moving to Denver, where he said the F-35 is going to be the low of the high-low mix and the high is going to be the end the next generation air dominance aircraft. There is going to be a collaborative combat aircraft that's going to be in there, including acquired in vast numbers, but you still need a fleet of man-inhabited, crewed, tactical aircraft to fill out your force structure. I don't think you're going to be able to do it with a thousand CCAs plus about 170 NGADs. I don't see it. No, Richard? that's exactly right. Yeah. Now, and, you know, one of the, I guess, the schools of thought um, award, what was it? How many air and space conventions ago was it? Was it uh, maybe two or three where they came up with that? Was it 386 squadrons? Is that what it was? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Heather Wilson and, was oh, Air Force Secretary. I was going to say four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, four years ago. And there was a school of thought that said the only reason they had that completely insane OAX requirement, let's use Super Ducatos for the Air Force, you know, was basically to pump up the number of squadrons because there was no other budgetary way of achieving that. Now, using that as an excellent segue to get to your fantastic foreign policy piece on uh, combat aircraft, we thought it would be a a good opportunity to talk a little bit about fighter programs around the world. Uh, And the first point that you make uh, is that a lot of these indigenous fighter programs have an almost unblemished record of of failure. That's not entirely true, but a lot of them have had a pretty checkered history uh, or airplanes that aren't necessarily that relevant. The Tejas program in India has been ongoing since the 1980s. And, you know, and you say that it's time to go to a larger and somewhat less obsolescent airplane. uh, Obviously, there was an agreement between uh, President Biden and uh, Narendra Modi for General Electric to manufacture the engines for that plane in India, co-manufacture those airplanes. Two-part question. The first one is, walk us through and walk the audience through the sheer scale of U.S. fighter dominance over the past couple of decades. I think that people have a tendency of forgetting exactly how dominant American combat aircraft have been across the piece, almost every single generation, whether it's F-104s, F-86s, A-4s, A7s, you know, F4s, F16, you know, walk us through exactly how dominant American airplanes have been in the market. And then if you could, the second part of that is why this new crop of airplanes are maybe different from preceding generations of indigenous airplanes. Yeah, thanks. You know, there's a couple of issues. One, absolutely. The U.S. has had three quarters of the export market for combat aircraft basically since, well, the if, if you remove the Russians forever and uh, if you include the Russians, well, let's just say they're no longer a factor on the market. So we're going from 75 to 85 percent or something like that. You know, and a lot has been changing that in recent years as people look to dual source, particularly from the French. But nevertheless, the U.S. maintains, even if even if that does move the needle a little bit, the U.S. is still going to have 65 percent or something like that. And, you know, the best example I can think of is back in the 1970s when you and I were in high school and, you know, just looking at this as hobbyists the Mirage F-1 was getting beaten by the F-16. In the 80s, when we were in college and later just starting our career, the Mirage 2000 was getting beaten by, very badly by the F-16. And then in the 90s, the French were desperately trying to launch the Rafale in the export market. And one of the places they were beaten in the UAE was by 
the F-16, basically. <laughs> you know, the, the F-16 was sort of the ultimate category killer uh, on the fighter market. And of the U.S. majority, a majority of that was the F-16, just beating everybody. And the F-35 is meant to carry on that good work and has done so, as we were just discussing, with, you know, the biggest problem being how do you build enough to satisfy a world demand? So the U.S. controls everything. But now there are two trends that I think have changed or threatened to change everything. One is the U.S. is no longer planning on building a next-generation jack-of-all-trades multi-role at a value price. No F-16, no F-35. Rather, it's NGAD and FAXX. So, you know, you get to that, okay, maybe Ecuador would like to buy a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier. There's massive mismatch <laughs> between cost and expectations and, and market pricing. No one is buying an NGAD. Maybe you'll sell a few FAXXs. So the F-35 is going to have to soldier on. That doesn't mean it'll do badly. It's just not going to be the kind of permanent world beater. And it's it's just not going to receive the same share of upgrade and improvement cash because so much will be going into NGAD and FAXX and CCA, another export non-starter. Now, the second trend is that for reasons of national security, for reasons of increased threat and the feeling that, hey, we can't buy an F-35, we better get self-reliant, everyone is now looking at their own combat aircraft. Some of it is emerging producers. Some of it is emerging producers working with legacy producers. Just an awful lot going on out there. And I spent some happy time in Korea back about a decade ago looking at what became the KF-21, you know, helping to define requirements of sort of, well, <laughs> who knows whether this will go anywhere. And now you look at what's happening with Korean industry. They can't build stuff fast enough. So I, yeah, I think they'll do fine with the KF-21. Um, I think that's true for an awful lot of people who are now planning fighter jets. You know, Taiwan clearly has to be reliant upon itself. So they're going to press ahead with the next generation plane. India, same, absolutely. Britain and Japan working together. Turkey, no question. There's so many, even, you know, some of the, the biggest markets in the Arab Gulf region, uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia, they don't have the technical skills or legacy establishments, but they sure want to buy into them. So I think it's a completely different market just at the very moment that the U.S. is turning away from exports in product development. Well, let's follow up on your experience with the KF-21. We had some fun last week with the name of the Turkish Azerbaijani Khan fifth generation aircraft program, and the Pakistanis may be coming in soon on that one. With that, the KF-21, the ADF in Taiwan, India, lots of others, which, if any of these, as you get to handicap it, are likely to succeed? And perhaps more importantly, what does success mean for each of these programs? Yeah, you know, very different expectations. But let's look at the F-16. When production ends, if it ever ends, it'll be 5,000 built. The F-35, when production ends... When it ends, probably 4,000, 5,000, I don't know, pick a number you like, right? We've got very different expectations here. I, I think, you know, if these countries build a couple hundred for home use and a couple hundred for exports, major strategic victory in terms of objectives. So if you, you know, curb your enthusiasm, as it were, you get some reasonably successful programs. You just can't think in terms of American scales for things. You know, one thing I think people are going to want to follow is the French model, where one third are for domestic consumption and two thirds are for export. You can't all do that, right? You can't 
come up with a national plane that follows the Mirage F1, Mirage 3.5, the Mirage 2000, and the way it's going, the Rafale, where you get the majority of your sales from exports. You just probably can't do that. So there again, they have to relax their expectations. And if you satisfy Turkish national requirements with the Khan and sell a few to Azerbaijan and a few others, maybe a hundred for export customers with a little bit of friendship pricing thrown in, it's a victory. Right, so, but if all of these programs are counting on exporting two thirds and they're all coming along at the same time, how realistic is that, that they all could do it? Yeah, it's not realistic at all. So people are gonna be commercially disappointed, but they'll say, well, we gave jobs to people we like because a lot of these countries aren't terribly democratic. You know, we managed to somehow magically enhance the national technical and defense space. And most of all, we provided for our own needs without worrying about imports. Now, this is where things get complicated. You know, the LCA, the, the Tejas, was known as the LCA, like combat aircraft, also the last chance aircraft. In other words, if we're embargoed for some reason, we don't have to worry, we can build our own. But right. guess what? Everyone has moved away from the complete vertical model. The LCA was originally powered by the Kaveri engine built in country. That doesn't work so good. Nobody can build a turbine engine other than a couple of legacy producers. Barriers entry are even higher, as you know, than in combat aircraft. So in other words, F-414s. <laughs> they can no longer be truly autarkic, truly independent when it comes to combat aircraft. A lot of stuff, I suspect, including major components for radar, ZW systems, whatever, have to be imported. And that means they're just as vulnerable to a cutoff in the event of an embargo. And some of that was driven right by the Pressler Amendment that both India and Pakistan were uh, subjected to just to give a little bit of redux on that. I want to get into the broader discussion and dynamics of what's driving this, right? Because I mean, US export control regulations are an important piece of, of this. But then again, some of it is also tapping the fighter market. But just parenthetically, does the F-35, right? I mean, because we're not going to export NGAD. We're not going to export CCA. We're still building F-16s. The F-35 is just now kind of going to go into service, right? And, it, and people are going to have to wait to get them into service. Isn't the F-35 actually the answer for a lot of these countries? And isn't it, you know, Tom Burbage joined us a couple of weeks ago, even though there's this fiction that somehow everybody is going to beat their F-35s into indigenous plowshares. That's not going to work either, is it? I mean, isn't the F-35 going to be the airplane that's going to dominate this market for a long time for just about everybody, including India? Absolutely. Absolutely. Eventually, but maybe. We're, you know, we're, we're talking 10 years out. We're talking 15 years out. You know, right. for the next decade, this is still a 75% America market. It might even go higher because of the F-35 success and because of Russia basically dropping out and China going nowhere in terms of combat aircraft exports. We're really talking the late 2030s when all of these plans come to fruition. And that's what everyone's saying. You know, the second half of the 2030s might be 2040. We're talking about the future strategy. If you're a head of business development for a company that builds components for this industry, you've got to think 15 or 20 years out. You know, after right. a lifetime in analysis and consulting, I can't tell you how many, you know, originally it was surprising to me when people wanted 25-year forecasts, but you kind of get used to it because that's what people need to do their long-range planning. And in that time, I have very little doubt that some of these plans are going to work out and the cash spent on them is going to displace money that would otherwise be spent on imported fighters. So how much of this is driven by U.S. export control and concerns about U.S. export control, which I can't believe is that 
significant ultimately. And how much of this is, ooh, 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 we can get a piece of this market with our very own airplane, which is why every single country develops its own trainers. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And there are too many trainers in the market to sustain the market. Yeah, you know, kind of like, gosh, was it Faulkner? You know, all unhappy families are different in their own way. All indigenous programs are, <laughs> they have their different <laughs> rationales and whatever else. I mean, look at Erdogan's campaign in Turkey. You know, a lot of it basically depended upon national glory, you know, make Turkey great again. And a big chunk of that was aerospace and aviation. It was kind of strange. Some of it's that, certainly true for Modi's India, no question. Some of it is a genuine need for self-sufficiency. See also Taiwan. Some of it is a plan to grow industry and whatever else. And, you know, the Anglo-Japanese Global Combat Aircraft Program fits that model. So there are all sorts of reasons, some valid, some less so. I would argue that export controls, as you apply, probably relatively little to do with that. I think where we do have to worry about export controls is that the system is geared to sell F-35s. The system is not geared to sell components that take advantage of these markets. And that's why I'm kind of impressed with the F-414 deal for the LCA, for the India market, because for once somebody said, maybe we should actually sell blue jeans and buckets to the guys panning for gold. <laughs> <laughs> and you know those blue jeans if you find them in the bottom of the mine you could sell them for a lot of money even if they're 120 years old i'm sorry go once ahead you clear the when you, when you clear the skeletons out of them yeah yeah no 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 i mean you know this right i mean they find these in yeah. mines in california and and those blue jeans are now selling at a premium that don't have to get skeletons shaken out of them anyway well so the F-414 wow. deal looks like it's moving ahead, but I keep remembering reading lots of articles by Richard Abalafia about Chinese commercial aircraft and how they can't exist without the West. How good a job have these various programs done in de-Westernizing or at least de-America-ing their systems, or are they ultimately going to need things that we sell in order to make these planes work in the long term? Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is the opportunity to sell them stuff. The problem is, again, the system isn't geared to do that. So I look at the KF-21. It has, surprise, surprise, an F-414 engine. But the U.S. just did not play ball when it came to other systems, whether it was EW or whether it was an IRST or crypto or weapons or radar. And so all of that stuff is technology from Europe and Israel and places like that. And I expect the other systems on, on Tejas are, are about the same too. Quite a lot of imported content, not from the US. We're just not used to thinking in these terms. And that's why I wrote the article. Let me ask you about the challenges of developing these programs. You join me on the Sunday podcast all the time. Uh, Sash Tusa of Agency Partners in London joins us. And so does Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities. And we've been talking about Tempest and SCAF. And certainly the British are very, very bullish. And Sash has been pretty bullish on you know, the speed with which this is going to come together and, and how they're going to succeed in this program. And I always like to point out that the United States that has really the world's largest body of experience with fifth generation aircraft, whether it's the 117 or the F-22 or the B-2, and now with the B-21 and the F-35 and operationalizing it, the likes of which nobody else on the planet has done. What are the challenges in developing 
a modern competitive combat aircraft that incorporates stealth, stealth sensors and achieving that level of integration. You know, uh, Greg Ulmer joined us and, you know, has, has noted that's like the heart, you know, it's, it's the hardest thing a nation can do is to develop this. I mean, you know what I mean? The United States has had to shovel tens of billions of dollars to addressing this. And even we are having challenges doing it and, and then run out of money to develop a new engine, for example. What are, what are the challenges and who here is going to succeed doing this? And what are going to be the level of sophistication of the jets that come out of each one of these national pipelines, I guess, without being critical? I, I wish everybody well. Um, and I think the British have a very thoughtful approach with a, Richard Burton is a tremendous person to be heading uh, the, the Tempest program. But it's a challenge. It's going to be a challenge, even if you define it and don't have the international, you know, 100, 100 nation partnership teams. Yeah, it, no question. You know, whether it's the sensor fusion or the stealth or whatever else, enormous challenges. But we're talking Britain here. Um, they've got tremendous capabilities and Japan has tremendous capabilities. And most of all, they can design a plane that's optimized for their rather alarmingly similar requirements. You know, they, they both want the same plane geographically, strategically. They both think like the island nations that they um, if they don't do, you know, if they don't say, oh, we also want a carrier version and a vertical takeoff version, and it's got to do all missions, and it's got to be small enough to do this. If they simply say, we want a plane for Britain and Japan that takes advantage of our national capabilities, I think that would require a lot fewer design compromises and would just generally be easier. Not simple, but easy enough. Most people aren't going to go down this path. They're not Britain and Japan either technologically or in terms of strategic requirements. I think an awful lot of these planes will probably look like the KF-21. The KF-21 folks will probably tell you, honestly, if uh, you know, if asked, this is not a sixth generation stealth combat aircraft. This is a very modern Super Hornet or, or something, you know, right. generation 4.5. It does the job. We're very proud of it. Thank you. I, it looks like the Turks are going down that path. Certainly the Indians are. Taiwanese, you know, whoever else, that's the path they'll take. It's, it's, you know, Britain, Japan, the Tempest, uh, global combat aircraft, whatever. I think that's going to be a unique product and possibly one that's not terribly exportable. It could be sort of the, the Anglo-Japanese NGAD, if you will. Dash has uh, pointed out, boy, it sure looks big. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, but they've bounded it, right? And it's a handful of countries that are setting a very, very similar requirement as opposed to F-35, which was jack of all trades and, you know, nuclear delivery aircraft. Although I suspect Tempest at some point will have that kind of a capability as well. But it's, it's interesting to watch. Last question, Richard. Are there any more shoes to drop? Are we expecting any other countries to come up with their own programs for fighters and try and take on this busy but not necessarily daunting competition? Well, you know, the Gulf markets in the Middle East are fascinating because they have a lot of money. They want to guarantee that there's a product that they can buy without the sort of gnashing of teeth they're experiencing with the F-35. And they would like to bring more technology and jobs back to their home countries. They're not exactly capable of even designing, well, anything. But what is in the art of the possible? Of leveraging what they have built up, of improving upon it, and of course, taking vast scads of cash. and getting a part of Tempest or SCAF or whatever else. The U.S. isn't going to cut them into NGAD, but will the Europeans? And indeed, will they get to a point in the next 20 years where they can plausibly, incredibly 
look to adapt something very specific for their own requirements and even do some of the mod work in country. That to me is sort of the, uh, the ultimate departure scenario. I'm not counting on it. Probably it's going to be an off the shelf buy because again, they just don't have anything, anything in country that's capable of working like this, but maybe they ramp up, maybe they make it a priority and uh, yeah, we'll see. Richard Abalafia, Managing Director at Aerodynamic Advisory. His article is The Fighter Jet Market Enters Its Multipolar Era. Well worth a look. Lots of detail, lots of amusement. It's at foreignpolicy.com. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Really appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.